died an atoning death and was raised the third day that we might be brought before you, that we might stand perfectly and holy before you. And as the song said, because our sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. And we thank you, Lord, that that is, in fact, the case. It's not anything that we think, do, say, or feel, but, Lord, it's rather that he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And we thank you that you provided this for us and glorify your... We ask that you would glorify yourself in us. Help those that are sick today. We ask that you would heal them. We ask for those who are in pain that you would find a way of easing their pain. We ask that you would just help all of us to glorify and honor you and serve you faithfully. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. As always, it's awesome to see you all. And I don't know what Siri's trying to do here, so if she starts talking, we'll just let her. Last week, I was taught a bit out of the life of Joseph. <clears throat> and I'm going to recall some of that today. So if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, uh, here's a quick synopsis. He was born the youngest of many. He was favored by his father over the rest. God had purposed to put him in a place of prominence for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of preservation for the remnant of Israel during famine. But the process through which God put him into these places was a trial, to say the least. It was pure torture. It was very painful. His brothers, in their envy of him because of the father's love and then now the dreams that God was giving him about how they would bow down to him in some way, they sold him into slavery. They took his bloody coat back to the father and told the father that Joseph was dead. Then in prison, he proved himself a worthy servant then put in charge of Potiphar's house. Then Potiphar's wife tried her little fanciful things and ended him back up in prison. Then he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh makes him co-regent. Basically, Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything. And then sometime, as the Lord had promised, as the Lord had shown him in the predictions, famine came, and who come into the court of Egypt but the brothers who left him for dead? And he forgives them. Now, I didn't have time last week to illustrate the opposite side of the story. I didn't have time last week to really get into, we saw Joseph as a type of Christ, the forgiving one, the one who was sent before, the one through whom reconciliation came, the one who would provide for the, those in need, those who were in need of filling, he would be their fulfillment. But what about the brothers? What about the offenders? Do they get a free pass? Do they just get off uh, of any consequence whatsoever? Well, we'll talk about that some today. But I want you to see today. I have one mission today. I want you to understand, I want you to comprehend very clearly so that you may apply it to every aspect of your life. I want you to understand that love from a divine point of view is the ultimate essence of being fulfilled and living a free life. I want to say that again. 
I want you to understand that love, from a divine point of view, is the absolute essence of living a fulfilled life. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. We mess that up when we think that that means about the ins and outs and the nuances and the idiosyncrasies of this normal walking on this big rock spinning through space. It is about understanding and living in the love of God. Now that, of course, as we've had many conversations through the last decade plus two, is that we are often misunderstanding what that means. We often misapply love. We often just really malign it because we feel as though it's the way we feel rather than the place we are and, most importantly, the things we do. The things we do. And so when we look at the life of Joseph... And we see that the reason God put Joseph there is to show us the picture of Jesus. You understand that, right? Joseph is not the life lesson. Joseph is not the model. Joseph is the commercial of the true. He is the commercial. Your life, your marriage, your relationships, your trials, your blessings is a reflection of the truth. So all the things in the world that looked before the cross, that looked to the cross, it, to, it was to look to the cross, the, the, the narratives of Scripture. We really mess up when we think that the Bible gives us lessons to learn and live by, by emulating the lives of those before us. And the only emulation that we have, the only copying that we should do is resting, ultimately, with great peace in the love of God, the love of God. Now, see, most anybody hearing what I just said in the world who aren't really grotesquely bothered by the idea of a divine person would say, yes, I agree with that. So there are distinctions. There are things that as we learn and grow in grace and we learn and grow in knowledge that we are to then take and, 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 and unpack and parse in a way that we become clear, clear in our understanding, that we, that we begin to apply more perfectly the things that the Bible teach us, teaches us. But never should, those, should that clarity become our assurance. Never should that growing become the moniker through which we stand before the Father and say, look, I'm growing. No, it is just the grace of God, the love of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God, and the absolute power of God that establishes us to stand before him. The song we just sang is a really awesome depiction of the gospel. We are not seen as sin because Christ has stood in our place when the father looks at us he sees us as his children holy and worthy and lovely as a bride prepared for her wedding day without blemish spot or wrinkle you see you see the image you see the picture you see the metaphor And so we look here, I want to set the stage of the opposite side of that. And I don't even want to say opposite, of the equal side of love, and that is reconciliation. The whole point of the good report is that it's a reconcil reconciliation of God with his people. It's a reconciling love. It's settling differences at great cost. Now, some of us can relate to Joseph in this narrative. We've been maligned, we've been mistreated, we've been hurt, we've been left for dead, we've been somewhat 
emotionally or culturally murdered. And some of us can relate as the brothers. We've done the murdering. We've done the maligning. And beloved, I think if we all just sit here for, for just a second and we just breathe, a couple of breaths in and just breathe out and we think, honestly, we're both. All of us have done wrong and all of us have been wrong. Now there's a scale in our little courts. There's a, there's a relative idea that in our courts, well, what I went through was worse than what you went through. It doesn't matter. As I've said just recently here from this platform is that the fear of a child, of the monster under their bed, which is absolute absurdity in the cognitive mind of an adult, that fear is equally as real as if someone kicks down your door and comes in with a bat in the middle of the night. It doesn't diminish it. So embrace the experiences of those around you. Embrace your own experience as authentic, as valid, as something that you have experienced. Do not belittle what you've gone through. Because if you don't, well, let's put it in the positive. If you belittle <laughs> your experiences, if you make light of them, you will never and you can never expect other people to understand them. And you will never put them in the right perspective. You'll always be thinking, well, I'm just, I, I deserve this. Well, you know what? We deserve a whole lot more than this. We get that, okay? We've read the Puritans. They're all dead. Let's move on. Let's move on to the culture that we live in today that's not bred through that lens. Yes, we live in a collective society. We live in a pluralistic society. We live in a, a tolerant society. Thank you. I thank the Lord for that. I would have been burned, drowned, hanged, or shot many, many times if we didn't live in the type of society that we live in. If we didn't have the First Amendment with the Establishment Clause. Thank the Lord that every cult that exists in the world today started in westward expansion in these United States. That's an amazing testimony to liberty. And it's an amazing opportunity for us to be able to be in a position where God has shown us true liberty. Which is found only in Jesus Christ which is true love, which is a story of reconciliation that only we can understand by the Spirit of God. So reconciliation, whether you're the brothers, whether you're Joseph, or you understand that you've in some way, in some sense, even if it's not really as bad as others, have experienced being both. Reconciliation is the goal, and reconciliation is the essence of Christian life. Now hear that. This is the third time I've said that, but it's a different way in which I've said it. Reconciliation is the goal and the essence of Christian life. It's deeply linked to spiritual fulfillment. And remember, I talked about fulfillment being the beginning and the end. It's the end game and it's where we start. Being fulfilled in life as Christians is the point. And we cannot find fulfillment unless we start in fulfillment. And it seems ridiculous and quite honestly, philosophers have been trying to figure this out for millennia. And they can do nothing but blah, 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 blah. that's all they can do. That's the most, that's the most prolific and, and amazing, uh, awesome response to this conundrum. Is it blah, 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 just, we just, we can't. It is what it is and that's the end of is. What is is even mean is. <laughs> Who knows? Who cares? To live, Paul answers it very clearly, is Christ. There's what is is. 
To live is Christ. To leave this world is far better. Because this world is not what it's about. So if the love that we are experiencing, that the love we understand, that the reconcilia- reconciliation that we're trying to put together, if, the, if, if, if life in and of itself is centered on a temporary journey, consider the life we live as the bus that's getting us to glory. And it's a bus without seats, but with great opportunities. It's a big bus. We can sit anywhere we want within reason and law. But quit putting our mind on these things. And don't put our mind on these really, you know, ethereal, aesthetically improper ideas of what glory is and what heaven's like. You know, we got Dante and he's really reinforced what hell is to most of us. And it's absolutely not taught like that in the Bible in any sense or any depiction. Not once. Not once has there any depiction of that. It's just, it's creative. I love it. It's amazing. But it has informed our view subconsciously. The same thing with heaven. I mean, I think of heaven. When you think of heaven, I mean, you automatically think of some cinematic thing that clouds and puffy things and little chubby babies with wings. And I mean, you know, you thank the Renaissance for that. They established, the painters and the artists and the poets and the illustrators and the sculptors established that. And you think it's Vogue or People Magazine that calls body images? No, it's the sculptors. <laughs> it's all of the things in this world that have told us who we are without giving us an opportunity to actually think that's who we are and to agree with it or disagree. And the same thing is true in the Bible. Being fulfilled is a place that you're put. And fighting for that fulfillment is the journey that you're on. And ultimately that fulfillment, as we talked about last week, is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And anything else that adds to that is just an overflowing blessing. It's just an overflowing blessing. Being full has a relational component. Why? Because we are not beings to be alone I mean it's just not the way it is even the most isolated creatures on the world have partners have mates maybe the black widow there are exceptions still has a mate for a minute or the praying mantis see don't emulate that I don't want to be the receiving end of that but we looked at some areas of Scripture last, last week about the love of God, about the adoption, about being brought into the fullness of things. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's not where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in a lot of different places. But Ephesians, you know, Brother Trey's been teaching in Ephesians. There's going to be a lot of reflection and, and pointing there. But I am going to spend some time in a minute in Psalm 51 when we talk about David. But in 2 Corinthians 5, starting verse 18, or verse 18 and 19, you, you, we see these words. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that us is referring to not just the apostles, but the apostles' protégés and mentees and the disciples of the apostles. And then us as the church, us and the people he was talking to there in Corinth. We have the ministry of reconciliation. Paul talks to the church of Rome and he says, as long as it is up to us, as far as it is up to us, reconcile one another. Seek to reconcile, seek to love, do these things in this way. 
And that's all we can do. We can't make someone else have a change of mind, repent. We can't make someone else have a change of disposition. We can't make someone else admit that they've done wrong. But let, in, in the conversations that we have in this life, we spend a whole lot of time trying to either angrily express our frustration with someone not seeing their error or, 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 or just passionately pleading with people to try to see or change. And it's really a fool's errand. It's not going to happen. And what's crazy is if we are even successful, it's typically manipulative and we don't even know it. And as soon as something else changes in that dynamic, emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually, or experientially, it all falls apart. So the little house that we think is being built and is such a strong structure is just a house of cards and toothpicks. And life is like a toddler with a tricycle running through the living room on fire with sharks chasing them from a tornado. Yeah, there you go. So there's a picture. And we thought Sinai was tough. Ephesians, Paul talks about the reconciliation of two groups. And I remember I taught this to our high schoolers in our homeschool group for years. And I taught Ephesians one, one year. And I had a little podium like this and was talking. And I always use the emphasis as that if we look at the top of this platform as, to, as the truth, as the gospel of being reconciled to God, and we see that underneath it is just all of humanity. This is Paul's illustration of Ephesians chapter 2. There are people who are far off and people who are near, but God brings them all near. What does he say? To reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. So if this is the cross on top, Everybody else is down here, and the pagans, and the Greeks, and all the other different people groups, and the, they were all the way down, they were under the stage, under the dirt, and the core of the earth, they were so far away from the top, but the, Israel was right here. They were literally building their houses at the top of this. Underneath it, though, they're still separated from the same distance. They were separated, but they could see it and not see it. They were there, they could hear it, they could experience it, they could touch it. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched with our hands. The eternal life that we proclaim to you. This is John, 1 John 1.1 1, 1, and, and, and beyond. So when that was beheld to them and they were there, everybody else said, well, you know, we're not close to this because look how far away we are. But the Bible says that God brought those who were far off to himself. But he didn't bring them to the ledge of the barrier. He brought them through it. He didn't bring them to the curtain of the Holy of Holies and let someone intercede on their behalf. He snatched them through it. How did he do that? Through his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility was torn down. This is reconciliation. So it doesn't matter where you are in your Christian faith. It doesn't matter how long you've been studying this, that, or the other. It doesn't matter how astute you are or how, how, how dumb you might feel. You are no... You're no you're in no place except in Christ or not in Christ. You're either in the love of God or you are out of the love of God. And you don't put yourself in there and you certainly don't keep yourself in there, even though a lot of people pretextually love to take uh, Paul's teaching to the Thessalonians where it says, keep yourself in the love of God, but he tells us how, by what? Resting in the fact that he keeps us in the love himself. Paul in the Romans says the same thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he lists every possible realm in the cosmos and even in the mind. Every possible option. So reconciliation is not a secondary aspect of Christian living. 
It's not secondary. It's not something that we should be doing. It is the life that we are living. It is the point of living. But just as I said already in this introduction, just like we mess up love, just like we mess up heaven, just like we mess up the idea of hell, just like we mess up the idea of all sorts of things, we have messed up the idea of reconciliation and we've messed up the idea of fulfillment. Because reconciliation with each other is not our fulfillment. But when we see reconciliation, it overflows our full cup. Because our cup is full in Christ. Matter of fact, the cup is Christ. We're in the cup. And he's not wanting or lacking. Reconciliation is foundational and it's mandated by Scripture. And it is the only way that we manifest it is one of the only ways. I won't say the other. It is one of the most essential ways that we manifest the love of Christ in our lives. God's love says that he loved us in this way, that he gave the, the son, the only one that he had, that the believing ones would not perish, but they have everlasting life. John goes on to say that God is love and that we love him because he first loved us. So, Let's talk about a couple of things. Let's talk about forgiving those who hurt us. Let's talk about being forgiven. And let's talk about the unfailing love that binds, which I've already sort of unpacked here as the introduction. In Genesis chapter 50, where we were last week, we see that Joseph forgives his brothers. So let's turn there. Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. And this eats my soul to joy. So if I pause, I'm just needing to. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the, God, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, look, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your children. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And Joseph and his brothers remained in Egypt for 110 years. Now, there's, there's a lot there. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, it's pretty touching. It's amazing. And then Joseph dies, and that's the end of Genesis. That's the end of the beginning. That's the end of the, the start of it all. That's the end of the outline of the gospel. And the last quote in the book says, God will surely... These are the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. <laughs> and so in a simple way, in a temporary way, in a metaphorical way, in a picture, 
Christ and Joseph. Joseph points to the death of Christ and that the death of Christ is still effectual, but yet Joseph did not rise from the dead except in Christ. And Christ is alive today. See, Joseph did not let go of the hurt. Listen, forgiving someone else is not letting go of the hurt. That's why I said what I said about your hurt. Have you ever been told, just let it go. Just don't, don't think about it. Just let it go. What is that? Have you ever been in chronic pain where you couldn't move and you prayed for the Lord to kill you? I have. And before I went through that, uh, I never understood it. I never understood. What is it really that bad? Yes, it's really that bad and worse. And the hardest part about pain sometimes is that we don't know when or if it will ever end. And that goes physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, all sorts of things. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't know when the pain of loss is going to end. It may not end, and it's not something we can just say, I'm over. Some personalities can make those things appear that way, and in their own mind, feel as that's what they've done. And they can say, hey, I'm just sort of let it go. No, you didn't. Your subconscious is constantly gnawing at you. And you're unconsciously aware of the fact that there is a wound and a pain and you've set it aside and you've put some type of other structure in its place, but it is boring like a little bee on the porch. It is boring a perfectly round hole. And one day, all that sawdust is going to fly out and get in your eyes. And you're going to go, what's happening to me? Forgiveness is not letting go of the hurt. Joseph didn't just say, that's all right. It is what it is. What will be, will be. That's not, that's not forgiveness. That's not reconciliation. Letting it go. It's deeper than that. What did he do? He proactively loved them. Now we'll get to their responsibility in a minute. He proactively loved them. He did something for them. He put himself in the authority and the position that he had and he actively exercised this privilege for their benefit because he wanted them to see more than that. Let me change what I'm about to say. He wanted them to be okay. And then they saw. It wasn't about Joseph anyway. It was about God's purposes. No different. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus Tells Peter to forgive, right? Peter's like, okay, well, the law says we should forgive seven times. What say ye, teacher? I say seven times seven. Seventy times times seven. What is that? 490. So do you have your little card out? Do you have the tick marks in by tens? Or hundreds? Or sevens? Are some of you sitting at a place where you're about to get to 489? Have you really been counting? Paul tells us in Corinthians 13 that love keeps no records of wrong. Love forgives all things. It bears all things. It endures all things. That love covers a multitude of sins. Listen, you I don't understand about the idea of seven is not a, not a numerical value in Semitic culture. It's a picture of perfection, of completeness. 
on the seventh day God rested for he had finished his work. That's all it means. It never means anything about counting anything. So when someone says forgive seven times, it means forgive continually. And to make it exponential and say seven times 70 and put some math in there, it means come on, get over yourself, quit counting. We also see that division in the context of uh, you know, multiples of 12 and the number 8 it's big stuff no pun intended he proactively loved his brothers in Matthew 18 Jesus tells Peter to forgive not 7 times but 70 times 7 in Ephesians chapter 4 be kind and compassionate to one another verse 32 forgiving each other in the way that Christ forgave you. See, the New Testament radicalizes. It takes forgiveness and just like blows it up into this crazy proportion. But it's not letting go of the offense. It's not just saying, ah, forget about it. It's pushing us to extend grace. It's pushing us to extend grace through the fulfillment that we have in the grace that's been given to us through the Lord Jesus. You didn't do this to me, he said to his brothers. God purposed it for your good. And that's fulfillment. The act of forgiving. You know, we can always see, I like this, Thanksgiving's coming up, you know, and I always like to see the commercials that I don't really see anymore because we stream stuff that we want to see rather than be forced to watch stuff we don't care about. Um, you know, but the commercials are like, be, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. You know, I'm thankful, I'm thankful. But see, to say thank you, right, to be thankful as an attitude, it implies something. It implies that there is someone that you're thankful to. You can't just be thankful for, well, I'm I'm thankful. You can say, I'm glad of this. I'm happy with this. I'm, 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 I'm excited about having this thing or this position or being where I am. But you can't say thank you. Thank you has to have a recipient. So to be thankful means that you're telling someone else that you're glad that they did or gave something to you. It's, it's someone else doing something. So it's funny how we can even say, I'm, I have a thankful attitude. I have an attitude of gratitude. But there is an object to gratitude. It's not an essence. It's not this, it's not this euphoric feeling. It's not a mindset. It's a one-way street of thankfulness to someone else for what they've done. And forgiveness is the same way. It's not just a moral requirement. The world says we need to be thankful. The world says we need to be forgiving. The world says we need to be kind. The world says we need to be compassionate. And the world is right. But why? It's not just a moral requirement. It's a source of spiritual fulfillment. Why do we live in a life sometimes, in our lives, so unfulfilled? It's because we're not exercising the things that fill us we're not resting in the things that fill us when we see the life of Joseph and we see the life that of Jesus that it points to we find that it's not about just morals and high roads and being the bigger person it's about tapping into a promise like Jesus says to the woman at Sychar when she says how is it that you would ask me a woman to give you a drink and he says to her I will give you water 
and you'll never thirst again. And she says, how is it that you would give me water and you have no bucket to dip water from? He says, the water that I give is it will well up over into eternal life. Think about that picture. Think about that fulfillment. What is he talking about? He's talking about reconciling her to righteousness, to God, to himself. And she's thinking about water. And that's right. That's what we're thinking about. Even when we have some theological understanding of things, we're still thinking about the surface level of things. We're thinking about water. We're thinking about drinking. We're thinking about the physical essence of our existence or the emotional stability of this physical world rather than understanding that we're not just doing good. We've been declared good. We're not just doing what's required of us by being forgiving and grateful. We are actually exercising that which flows from the fullness therein, Jesus. And we align ourselves with the very heart of God, which is very fulfilling. Very fulfilling. So what can we do? I've already said what we can do, but let me point them out. We need to acknowledge our pain. We need to acknowledge we've been hurt. We need to acknowledge that we're not supposed to just get over hurt. We need to pray for the strength to forgive because it is not within ourselves to do it. And then, as I've already said, like out of Romans, we need to take whatever steps we can take to reconcile in any way that we can, but we are not responsible for the other person and their response to us. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It involves also an action that begins with these things. As we see the life of Joseph, as we see the perfection of the life of Jesus, they modeled forgiveness, and they were both fulfilled in it. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. I don't have that spirit in my flesh. I have that spirit given to me by God. And oh, my flesh loves to argue legally with that. And justify my pain and justify my actions and justify my thoughts. <laughs> Doesn't it? We're at war. We're at war. Forgiving those who hurt us is a path to personal fulfillment. But what about the brother side of things? Remember I told you I was going to do this. What, about, what if we're the ones that need forgiving? And we are. We're all Joseph and we're all the brothers. We've all been hurt and we've all hurt someone. Turn to Psalm 51. And y'all know this. You know the context of Psalm 51? David had a best friend. A man who would lay his life down for the cause of David. His name was Uriah. 
And I'm going to say some things this morning about this that are going to upset some of you. I'm just going to go ahead and let you know. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. It's going to upset some of you because you probably haven't viewed these things in the proper context of the authoritarian ideals of kings. And we live in a society that's often very quick to blame people who are victims. And I'm going to tell you right now that's nonsense. And I have given myself permission to see through it and to not worry about how it's perceived in truth. But David is the king. There's no greater person above him. There's no power above him except God alone. He ruled and his word was law. Just like all kings and queens throughout history, people who are totalitarians or authoritarian or dictators, they have the power because of fear, manipulation, and whatever else they use to get what they want. They're able to say things and it happens. And so whatever the king wants, the king gets. And Uriah is one of these people who serves out of love and out of, out of self-fulfillment, believing in the cause, believing in the God like David. And Uriah went to war for David as a general and he put his friends and his brothers and his cousins and his fellow men in harm's way for the sake of the freedom of Israel. While David, who was a warrior, he wasn't a coward, he wasn't a guy who like, let's just go to war and see what it costs, but I'm safe. He also was a fighter, but in this particular moment of history, David was not on the front lines. The king cannot really be there because that's disastrous, right? But Uriah was there in his stay. Uriah was faithful and loyal. And David knew this. And while Uriah was fighting Bathsheba, Uriah's wife was bathing. And David was peeking. David was a voyeur. David was a sex offender. See, that offends us, doesn't it? He'd gone to the penitentiary for watching somebody take a bath in 2023, (laughs) and rightly so. You see what I'm saying? And so David, by his word as the king, ordered that Bathsheba be brought to him. There's no other way that would have happened. And then we know the story. Bathsheba Becomes with child. And David's going, I have messed up. Uriah's going to be. I know what? My great man Uriah. Let's give him a break. Let's bring him home in a furlough so he can rest. But Uriah was a faithful man. And he slept outside in the yard. Because his mission and mine was still to serve David on the battlefield. And so David's like, Send Uriah the best wine I have. And then when he's drunk, you get the cover up, right? Even in drunkenness, Uriah was a faithful man. So the only recourse David had was to make himself a hero. 
And he orders all of the army, when they go onto the battlefield, to step backward at the charge so that Uriah runs out into the field by himself and he dies. And then they throw him a parade. And then a, 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 you know, a, a big celebration about this great man who served Israel, who served God, who served the king. And I feel so bad for his wife. I'm going to bring her into my home, make her my own. And we know what Nathan tells the king. He says, you the man. Because <laughs> Nathan tells David about this horrible man who had all the sheep that he could ever have and had all the wealth they could ever have and had everything. And there was this one man and he loved this little tiny sheep as a, as a precious, I don't know, what do you call it? Is it a pet? I don't know. It wasn't livestock. It was this precious companion, this one little lamb. And he loved this lamb dearly. And this man who had all these thousands and thousands of sheep, he just went in and stole this man's lamb and killed the guy. And David goes, who is this? Who is this man that I might put him under justice? And Nathan says, you're that man. Psalm 51. It's David's worship song to be sung in the assembly about himself. I write music. I'm not writing songs like this, y'all. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my sins, my transgressions and my sins is, is ever before me. I pluralize that. Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, look, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Look, you delight in truth in my inward being, and you teach me wisdom with a secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, bathe me, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear your joy and your gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me, O God, a clean heart and a renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your face and do not take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I, I will teach your transgressors your ways and I will teach sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So you see what David's saying here, right? There's a couple of lines I want to bring out here and I want to think. Being forgiven is not getting away with it. David comes to this place by the purposes of God because he didn't get away with it. He got away with the shame and the public disgrace of what he'd done, but he did not get away from the consequences of what it caused. It destroyed him. It destroyed his family. It destroyed the kingdom. 
and it split everything in half. He never, ever had it good again. But he was fulfilled. Now I want you to hear this. Because sometimes when we are in the position of forgiving someone, it comes with resentment. Because why should they get away with it? Nobody's getting away with it. In the righteousness of God in the court of grace, we do get away with it because Christ suffered for it. So we didn't get away with it. We transferred our guilt to the innocent and they died in our place. We didn't get away with it. Somebody else took the payment. And we also don't forget about it. You see? So being forgiven, the offender's responsibility and their own spiritual fulfillment. It doesn't go away. In Luke, Jesus tells the masses there when he's teaching, if someone changes their mind and asks for forgiveness and repents, he says, you must forgive them. But if they don't, there's no instruction for that. If someone doesn't seek reconciliation, and you have tried reconciliation, there's nothing more that you can do. If you try reconciliation, that person has no, does not have a repentant heart. That means a change of mind about what they've done. If they don't own their, if they don't say, listen, I know I did that. Even if it's, I didn't mean to, I can see now that I hurt you. I can see now that I did that. I can see now what I've done. I'm sorry. You accept it. You receive it. But it's still not over, is it? It's not over for anyone. This is where the fulfillment comes in. This is where the idea that, Repentance is not just beneficial for the one sinned against, but it's also crucial for the sinner. If I'm going to forgive, I have to change my mind about what has happened to me. And I have to change it in, through the lens of Christ, because that's the only lens that makes logical sense. Honestly, I'm a fool if I seek to forgive someone who's going to do the same thing over and over again without a conversation about that. But just like love, I love cheese pizza, I forgive you, it's not to be that flippant. I love you, but I'm going to work on forgiving you. That's a better statement. And the way we're going to work on forgiving you is that we're going to have a conversation about this. And then we're going to be reminded of the gospel. And then God is going to grant us this repentance together. And that reconciliation is not always the way things were. Sometimes it's a new chapter and things are okay the way they're going to be. David says he knows his sins. In verse 4 of Psalm 51, it says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Now, <laughs> could you imagine Uriah's wife going, What? You murdered my husband, your best soldier. You took advantage of me. You abused me. You made me an obstacle, I mean, a, a spectacle, an object of your glory. How dare you say you've only sinned against God? <laughs> Uriah's parents, I object! I mean, you know, can you see them? You lying king, you! Sin against all these generations. What did... What did Joseph say? Joseph said the same thing. 
Joseph said that that which you have done, that you thought was evil, God purposed for good. Do not fear. He asked a question, am I in the place of God? You see the difference. What does my forgiveness have to do with anything? Or my unforgiveness have any power over you if God has forgiven you? And if I sin against you or you sin against me, really, ultimately, the sin is going straight up. We're sinning against God. And the only court that it matters where our sin is actually counted is in the court of, court of righteousness. The indictment is not, James Tippins cannot indict you, nor judge you, nor sentence you for anything you do to him. Neither can you to me. Sure, temporary things in certain aspects of the judicial system. But when it comes to, to the reality of full forgiveness, every offense is offense directly to God, and that makes it even worse. It makes it even worse. Especially when we realize that what God has done is taken that offense and placed it on Christ. And crushed him in our place. Reconciliation is not one-sided. It requires the offender to take steps. It requires the offender to seek fulfillment. So what do we do? When we've offended someone, when we've hurt someone, when we've done things repetitively or even once, purposefully or either unknowingly, we have got to take time to look inside. We have got to take time, instead of being defensive, we have to take time to look and go, you know what, they're right. Sometime in 2008 or 2009, I was sitting with a, a group of people after a conference in this older pastor. It's not old, they're just older. was telling a story about one time that somebody had accused him of lying to them and he had not lied to them. And one of the guys with me just jumped back and said, man, I tell you what, I wouldn't tolerate that. Just got all upset and just, rah! Put up, people calling me a liar. And the man touched the guy's arm. He said, listen. He said, I am a liar. Because I have lied. So for this man to tell me that I lied to him, though it was not true, he calls me a liar. It, the, being called a liar should not offend me, for it's true of me, because I have lied. And so what did you do? He said, I thanked him for reminding me that I'm a liar. <laughs> but I assured him that I had not lied to him. And we reconciled. But see, what would I do? I'm not a liar! What did the children do? Take that back! And then they go lie. Johnny hit me. He did not hit you. He said something ugly. You know. We prove what we are. But we're not just reconciling with others. When we seek forgiveness or when we forgive, we're actually reconciled to God. Now, 
When I say that, I'm not talking about in the judicial sense. I'm not talking about in the gospel sense. I'm not talking about in the work of Christ. But I mean emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, we're renewed. Because when we live in a place of tension, even when we're not thinking about it, we've stored it in that little tiny place in our mind where it never pops up. It still is a problem with our spiritual growth and it's still a problem with our fulfillment. It's still a problem with our happiness. It's still a problem with our joy. It takes away from everything. And so we have to take these steps. But we also have to recognize that if the offender does not actively seek forgiveness, there's really little that we can do. Little that we can do. And forgiveness sometimes on the part of the offender is stopping the behavior. Making amends. Making restitution for something that was costly. Now you fill in the blame. It's not making them pay. It's making it right. You see it all the time in stories and movies. You see it with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus came to the awareness that he was a thief. He had it. All he had to know was, I'm forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, from this point forward, I'm just going to live and not do this anymore. He couldn't live with himself in that. He's like, I can't live knowing that I live the way I live with the means that I have that I got them through thievery. I'm going to give it back. I'm going to give back the interest that I've made. I'm going to give it all back. Now, God did not ask that of him. And God's not specifically asking that of you. But he is the, it is the example. What did Christ do? He gave it all. But Christ isn't a sinner. He took it all. He took all of it. He took, it, he took the nature. He took the hostility. He took the wrath. He took the justice. He took the sins of omission, the sins of commission, all the other stuff the evangelicals have come up with, these little quippy sayings throughout the centuries, all the non-biblical context, out-of-context stuff that we try to find and we read in. He took it all. He took every bad thought, every bad word, every bad deed, every ill desire, every unconscious thing that is not pure before the Lord. And he put it on himself and he identified himself as a sinner and he died in our place. David knew there was nothing he could do to seek the face of God and find it if God hid himself from David. He knew there was nothing he could do to find forgiveness that God had to grant it. But he was absolutely repentant. He had had a changed mind. That's what the word means. Repentance means a change of disposition. Literally and only ever does it mean a change of disposition. The way I'm thinking about this, you know what? I've changed the way I think about it. And I'm seeing it from a different perspective. That's what repentance is. Repentance has nothing to do with us doing better or putting away sin except that it's the change of mind that causes us to make those changes. Don't make it so big of what it's not. Make it for what it is. God grants repentance to believe the gospel in its simplicity. You realize that a good report is just a simple message. Christ paid it all. And when we rest that saving faith, all the theological distinctions that come in and out of that is the journey. 
and we're going to ebb and flow just like the New Testament churches did. They got it right, they got it wrong, they got it wrong, they got it wrong, got it wrong, got it right. <laughs> but they were still in Christ. How is this even possible? Well, I'll preach the end of the sermon that I preached last week from a different context. And Hosea, the prophet, Israel was sent to tell them about their disobedience. If you haven't read that in a while, I really think you should read it. And in chapter 11, well, let's just read it. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I called my son out. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burnt offerings to idols. Yet it was I who took Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Can you see the picture? A little kid not being able to walk and just holding them by their arms as they toddled around. (laughs) I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to turn to me. I want to preach this. Oh well. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west, and they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So, what's the point there? We see what God is saying. We see what God is going to do. We see that God is going to take them out of one level of captivity and put them into another, from Egypt to Assyria. And we see that he calls them, hey, please come. Come on. Come be reconciled. Let me, come here. I'm here. Come on. Let's, let's be together. Let's be one. And they just keep on running away. And they bring with them the consequences of their own desertion, of their own hurt of their own sin of their own escape of their own running from God who's not a man but God he's not a human thank him for that he doesn't act out of the flesh that's the point of that and he says I'm going to do this I'm going to do that I'm going to tell you right now their people are bent on turning away and they call out to me oh God where are you and then they run away when I show up But verse 8, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I turn you into an enemy? 
My heart recoils. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy you. For I am God, the only one, holy in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Beloved, this is the message of Christ. God's relationship with Israel is a paradigm for love that forgives and seeks reconciliation. God seeks reconciliation. We're not seeking to be reconciled to God. He reconciled us to Himself through the cross. And if that is true and my offenses to you or my offenses in my home and to my wife and to my children and to my friends and to my community and all the things that I've done wrong and all the ways in which even purposefully have hurt others through my life are truly an offense to God and He seeks to reconcile with me through Christ in that, oh, can I not repent and seek reconciliation with others? See, that's the hardest part of forgiveness for me. It's because forgiveness in my life has always been one-sided. People do things and I just forgive them. I just let it go. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is a contract in which I and you sit down and we work out the problem and we work out the pain. And when you say, I'm getting up from the table, then my forgiveness is rested right there. And I can forgive you, but that's as far as it goes. And I won't let you live rent-free in my head. We can't let people do that. And that is not something we can do without work, without discipline, without spiritual maturity, maturing. We're never spiritually mature. We're growing and maturing. And I've already quoted the proof text for this in the New Testament from Hosea, God seeking after us. And we see that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see that love text and we think, how can I do that? I've preached that probably 10 times when I preached through John's gospel. I use that text probably at least 10 times. And we see love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. But beloved, that is a divine work. That is not something that there's anything in our natural state, our natural body, our natural emotion, our natural thoughts, our natural psychology, our natural philosophy, even our natural theology, if you want to get into that, can muster. It is something that God just must plant and we rest in. And it takes discipline. Love is not what I feel. It's not a fleeting emotion, but love according to the grace of God and the the passion of God and the searching of God for His people to reconcile them to Himself, love is an enduring force and central to, the every, to every breath that I take as a Christian. And I don't like that. I'm not sitting up here going, it's just great, I'm a poet, but I love macabre. I would rather read, write, and consider Edgar Allan Poe than I would Anyone else? Because I get that. I don't like it. Why? Because I can't do it. You see? And we spend our lives trying to do and be what we aren't, and we posture and we pretend to the point we don't even know who we are. And we don't even know what we are. We don't even know where we are. And then we start looking in the mirror and we go, Who is that standing in my bathroom? Oh, that's me. We look in our soul and think, who is this? 
and then we have a crisis, right? Could be a day, could be a decade. We don't know. A crisis of faith. I remember I went through a crisis of faith. 2003, 4, 5. It was building. 2005, it sort of came to a head. I'm like, oh, wow, that was my crisis. Whew, what a life to learn. I'm glad I went through that early. <laughs> I should have been the beginning of the crises of faith. In this thing called the crisis of life. That should have been the title of the journal for that period. If I were to rewrite those things today, I'd be like, ah! Just a bunch of A's and H's with exclamation points. Subtitle. <gasps> That'd be the end of it. The unfailing love of God is an enduring force that is central to our lives. The love that enables forgiveness and reconciliation, as I've already said, is not human. It's divinely implanted in us by God. It's divinely awakened and expressed in us when we are disciplined to read the Word of God and to be with the people of God. It is not going to happen by accident. Some of you all have been blessed with teeth that never need brushing and never need a dentist. I'm not that type of person. If I went a year without brushing my teeth, I'd do like this. I mean, they'd be gone. It'd be over. Some of us, it comes easier than others. Well, let's quit pretending. And let's start living. We're capable of such love. We're capable of expressing such intimacy. Not because of our human capacity, but because of God's divine power. Sound familiar? See, when I say things like that, if you read the Bible often enough, these things pop in your head. First Peter, God's divine power gives us everything we need for life and godliness. I want to tap into that. I want to feel it. I want to experience it. That's not the point. You got to know it. And it's not about academics and it's not about cognitive information. It's about knowing it by the discipline and then God works in you. I tell people sometimes to read the scripture when they're in a bad place, just like some of you have told me. And what is our first response? That ain't going to work. And then you and your pride, because see, I'm a, I'm a prideful person. I didn't know that really. I'm not prideful and look at me, I'm better than anybody else. I'm prideful and I'm in control of this. I don't need that. I don't need you. I don't need you to tell me what to do either. <laughs> and then I do it six hours later, and it's like, ah, oh, you were right. This love of God, this power of God, is just too much. Too much in my head. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Paul in Romans 5. Through Him we all have obtained access by faith into this grace, resting in this grace by which we stand, in which we stand, and in which we rejoice, and in which we hope for the glory of God, the, the trueness of who God is. Not only, that we, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character, hope. 
Verse 5, this is what I was looking for. And hope does not put us to shame. We've been using the phrase a fool's errand in my house for 25 years. And that's when we do things that are really just, we're going to the store to buy something that doesn't exist. It's an errand for a fool. Hey, go down there and buy the schlimmerdiggy. They're $2.99. Don't come home without it. You'll never see that person again. And sometimes hope feels that way, right? Like a fool's errand. But hope does not put us to shame. Why? How are we not fools? Paul says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Where is it? Through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. It's God in us, not love in us. This is God loving through us. God reconciling you to us through the, when I started out in 2 Corinthians, through the ministry of reconciliation that was given to us. It's a two-way street, but it is a divine work. And a fulfilled life is only achieved when we engage in acts of love that are both receptive and giving. We cannot control other people, but we can control ourselves. We can control our disciplines. We can control how we relate to our thoughts and feelings and bodies. But we cannot control those. When we act from the place of the love of God in a divine way, we align ourselves with God's will and it fills us up to such a place that we can't explain it. We just live it. God's love is unchanging. God's love for his people is forever. And it's always working to bring us closer to him. May we live as the offender of God in a place of hope because of the love of God. And if we can do that, then we can reconcile in our hearts and minds anything that happens on this earth as Christ has reconciled us through his life, through his body, and through his blood on the cross. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the love of Christ, for the outpouring of your work of your mercy, of your compassion. Father, I don't, I don't even know if what I've said today is even applicable to my own life in a, in a real sense, tangibly and practically, but Father, I feel the practicality of this work, of this spiritual thing. But I can't really put my finger on what I've done or what anybody else has taught or anything. So Father, if all of us are in the same way, help us to just be settled. If that's the best that we can do, that is the best place to be to be settled in our hearts that you are walking for us and with us and living through us and that we don't have to figure it out but Father let's just be and continue to learn and eventually just like exercise of the body and of the mind exercise of faith will rest more strongly today than it's ever rested and tomorrow the same help us to live that way oh Father to love one another to be reconciled to one another and Lord, to accept the consequences sometimes and not feel a victim when we've paved it. But Lord, to also know that even in that suffering, it has greater purpose. There are so many things to look and see. 
But Father, help us to look at the cross most of all. No, not the cross. Look at Christ who is no longer there. The author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Some 400 years after Joseph and his brothers were reconciled in Egypt, their descendants numbered in the millions living as slaves among the Egyptians. And in the Lord's timing, it was time for them to go. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart with nine plagues and with the tenth That was the end of it. The Lord gave instruction to the Hebrews. He said, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now there was no difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians, right? Except the judgment of God passed over them on account of the blood. 
If you've read John 6 recently, you might recall the strange instructions that Jesus gave to the people. He said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And when we read the Exodus, when we read the Passover, when we read Jesus' instructions in John 6, we recognize that on the cross, he gave up his flesh. On the cross, his flesh was struck, and through our faith in that, we eat of his body. When you drink of this, you remember the blood on the doorpost, and you remember the blood of Christ poured out for you that is a covering for your sin, that when the holy judge looks upon it, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Drink. Drink.